heart. Uh, question, have you ever had a great coach? Have you ever had a, a great coach? And I'm showing the, the picture our, of our beloved Stan Borgman, Coach Stan Borgman. Many people in our community would uh, say that Stan Borgman was uh, one of the great coaches that they, they remember. I never had the benefit of watching uh, Stan Borgman on the sidelines, but I can only imagine. What makes a great coach? What goes into someone that you would say is a, a great coach? Well, they're supportive, they're encouraging, they know how to hold the team and how to hold the individuals on the team uh, accountable. They have clear expectations. They have high expectations. They have a level of expertise in, in the field that they're, they're coaching. There's a lot that goes into being a good coach. So there's several people that uh, answer that question, what makes a great coach? One of them is Michael Jordan. You may have heard of them. Him, he said this, a coach is someone that sees beyond your limits and guides you to greatness. A coach sees beyond what you think your limit is and guides you to greatness. Tom Landry, the legendary coach of the Dallas Cowboys, is a coach who, who's someone who tells you what you don't want to hear, shows you what you don't want to see, so that you can become what you've always wanted to be. Or John Wooden, if Mike Ankrum was here, he'd probably say John Wooden is his favorite coach. A coach is someone who can give correction without causing resentment. We are in a series right now titled The Cost of Discipleship, and we're working our way through Jesus' longest sermon recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, remember the context. There was this great crowd of people uh, that had come from everywhere to see Jesus. And Jesus withdrew from that great crowd up on the side of a mountain, and he called his disciples to him. Essentially what he did is he called a timeout. And he called his team to him to kind of huddle up. And the coach is giving his team, the disciples, some instructions, what we might call life instructions. And he's really doing this in the... In the kind of a manner of a, a coach. So a coach sees beyond what we perceive as our limits. And as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, clearly the coach, Jesus, is seen beyond what the disciples and beyond what we recognize as our limits. He sees beyond that to guide us towards greatness. And in the context of the sermon, he tells us some things we may not want to hear. And he shows us some things that we may not want to see, but he does that with the purpose that we might be transformed by it. And he does it all in a spirit of love so that we can receive this guidance, we can receive this correction without resentment. So in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus addresses the subject of anger and the subject of conflict. And those things have always been around. Certainly, we are living in an angry time. Seems like everybody is angry about something. Anger, rage, conflict is just normative. So, so how do we, as members of Team Jesus, how do we live in an angry world? Join me as we pray. 
Father God, we thank you that you have not left us without a rudder so that we are easily swayed by the ways of this world. You say that your ways are not our ways, and so we pray that you would show us your ways. Teach us your paths and guide us in your truth. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21, Jesus says to his team huddled up, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The coach tells us some things that we may not want to hear shows us some things that we may not want to see so that we can be transformed. You've heard it said, he begins, you shall not murder. Had they heard that before? Yes, they had heard that. In fact, they knew that that was something that God himself inscribed, engraved on a tablet of stone and gave it to Moses. It was one of the the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, very economical in words. Four words, you shall not murder. In every civilized society, there is this common understanding that, that murder is a crime. Murder is a crime. This is not a commandment that is uniquely Christian. Maybe at, in Jesus' day, it was a more radical uh, commandment, and and even today as things are going on, maybe it's more radical than I realize, but in most civilized societies, we recognize murder as a crime. This is not uniquely Christian, and of of the Ten Commandments, I would say, my opinion, is that this is the easiest one to keep. This is one that, that we don't struggle with. I, who here woke up this morning and prayed fervently to God, Lord, help me not murder somebody today. Like that, That's not one of the besetting sins that, that we wrestle with. And, and we even make jokes about it. You know, like I'm thinking of the school teacher who comes home at the end of the day and has just had the worst day and laments about all the things that happened today, but then comforts herself, well, at least I didn't murder anyone today. Like, it's a good day. I, I didn't murder anyone today. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, 
and anyone who does will be subject to judgment. I imagine the disciples at this point feeling pretty good. Like, Jesus, we, we got this one. Like, no, no problem. We don't need to spend any more time on this commandment. Let's, let's move to the next instruction, the next bit of coaching, because this is, is a play that we got down. But Jesus is going to raise the bar a little bit higher than the, the disciples are thinking. He's aiming for something much higher, much greater than just, you shall not murder. He continues, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Michael Jordan says a coach is someone who sees beyond our limits seems to me like Jesus is seen beyond our limits. Like, are you serious? Like, we really, are, are you serious about this command? We are not called to be angry with a brother or sister or we're subject to judgment. This seems impossible. And so we have to ask the question, is Jesus serious? Is this just hyperbole? Is this exaggeration? Or, or is he really serious about this? seems to me that, that he is being serious and that he means what he says. I think he's doing the Tom Landry thing of saying things that we don't want to hear and showing us things that we don't want to see so that we can be transformed. According to Jesus, it's not enough to say, well, at least I didn't murder anyone. Like the litmus test of obedience for us as believers is much higher than at least I didn't murder anyone. That conviction uh, of thou shalt not murder, it doesn't differentiate us from the world. That's a conviction most people share. But what does differentiate us from the world, what's supposed to differentiate us from the world, is how we handle anger, how we handle conflict. We're called to handle that differently than the world handles it. We are called to be very, very different in this regard. You may not share this opinion, but to me it seems like we are living in an increasingly angry, hostile time. In the world, in our own country, people are angry. Uh, outbursts of rage are not even newsworthy anymore. They're so common. More and more neighbors are at odds with one another. I guarantee here there are many of you who have neighbors that you just cannot even speak to. And that's just common across the board. There's an alarming escalation of disrespect everywhere. I often wonder why would anyone want to serve on like a, a, a public service uh, role? like school board, city council, like why would anyone invite that? It's like fair game, anything goes. The disrespect, the hostility, it shows up everywhere in our communities, our classrooms, our places of work, our social media platforms. I, last night I, I told Karen, I am deleting Facebook, I'm done. And I deleted it and I've gone to my phone three times already looking for it. It's gone. Keyboard warriors, we call them. 
make the most vicious attacks from the comfort of their lazy boy recliners. But at least we're not murdering anyone. And besides, we would say, aren't there some things that are worth getting angry about? I mean, people are angry today for good reason, right? And didn't Jesus get angry? I mean, he flipped over the money changer's table in the temple. He made a whip and he drove the people out of the temple. Is there not such a thing as righteous anger? Yes, absolutely there is. Injustice should make us angry. Evil should make us angry. But even when we are uh, exhibiting righteous anger, God has a word for us, and it's this. In your anger, do not sin. Righteous anger is not a license to sin. In your anger, do not sin. Jesus flipping tables, it's not like he made a regular habit out of this. Some of us, we say, I'm angry, and it's justified, it's righteous anger, and we are perpetually in that state every single day. If you are angry every single day, it's a pretty good indicator it's not righteous anger. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Raka, what a, a great word. We have no idea what that word means in Aramaic but I've got a really good guess. Here's my guess. There's a thousand different things that we could substitute for that word raka, and they would all translate roughly the same way. Anything that, that we might say to, to derogatory, that's derogatory or, or to curse someone is essentially raka, and none of those things are appropriate for a disciple of Jesus Christ. So is Jesus, like, does he think we live in a, a fairy world, a, a make-believe world? I mean, really? Are we not supposed to get angry with our, our brother or sister, and we're never supposed to have a derogatory word? Well, lest we think that Jesus is, you know, living in this make-believe world, he continues and tells us what we are to do with our anger and with our conflict. Therefore, he said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so you're, you're worshiping, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So again, the coach is telling us something that we might not want to hear and showing us something that we might not want to see. What he's saying is that, that you cannot compartmentalize your life, which is what we love to do. Like my, my life with God, my vertical relationship with God is independent of everything else. It's independent of my marriage. It's independent of my parenting, independent of my relationships at work or how I conduct my work, independent of what I like to do for fun. We compartmentalize our life. And, and God is saying, you cannot do that. They are related, so related that if you are worshiping me and the Spirit convicts you that there's this person who has something against you, I would rather you stop worshiping me and go and be reconciled to them. 
Which means maybe the, the most God-honoring thing that I could do right now is to end this sermon, pronounce the benediction, and send you all to go reconcile with that person that you're not talking to. Go be reconciled with that, that person that a conflict you've been in conflict with for maybe even years. This is what God desires of us. And so again, we have to ask, really, Jesus? Is he being serious? He would rather that we not continue lifting up our hands, singing, I love you, Lord, if by our actions we're saying, I don't care about you, neighbor. He'd rather we just stop singing. According to Jesus, you cannot love God and hate your neighbor. You cannot do it. You cannot worship God while you're cursing your neighbor. You cannot rest in the assurance of your sins that are forgiven if you are not extending forgiveness to your neighbor. You can't bow before the Prince of Peace while you're at war with your neighbor. To do this, to try and do this, is to lead a disintegrated life, a compartmentalized life. To do this is to live a life that lacks integrity. It lacks integrity. Jesus calls us to integrity, which means Jesus calls us to wholeness. Leading a compartmentalized life is the opposite of that. There's another teaching in the, the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to get to, and it ends with this verse. Jesus says, be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I've always wrestled with that. I mean, talk about seeing beyond our limits. Be perfect? Come on, Jesus. You know we can't be perfect. But what is Jesus talking about? That word perfect in Greek is telos, and it means whole. It means complete. This is not just like be morally perfect, be blameless, never sin. What, what Jesus is saying to us is lead lives that have integrity, that, that are not compartmentalized, that are not disintegrated. Who you are, be that everywhere. Be that at work. Be that in your marriage. Be that at the school board meeting. Be that as you worship Sunday morning. God is perfect. That he is whole. Who he is, he always is everywhere. That means that our relationship with God and our relationship with people, with one another, those two things are enmeshed. And we can't just easily separate them. So one of the things I noticed about this passage is that Jesus didn't say, if you have a grievance with somebody else, like somebody has really ticked you off, if you have a grievance with somebody else, he said, no, if you're worshiping and you recognize that somebody has a grievance with you. And the implication is that if you have a grievance with someone else, we're called to, to forgive. Like there's an expectation there that we're going to forgive and that we're going to find a way to move forward. But if you are worshiping and you recognize that somebody has something against you, like you're the culprit, you've done something wrong, or, or maybe it's, you think it's not justified, you haven't done something wrong, but they still have something against you, so much so that your, your relationship has been, been rocked, Jesus says, go be reconciled. Be reconciled to them. 
well, what if I've done that and they still won't forgive me? Like, how many times am I going to try and, and reconcile this relationship? Because as you and I both know, it's not entirely up to us. You can want to be reconciled to someone and be in a restored relationship, but if they don't want to be reconciled to you, there's only so much that you can do, and, and God knows this. This is why he tells us in Romans, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Like, if you're in a relationship that is not right, don't let it be because of you. Do everything in your power to restore that relationship. But if you've done everything in your power, and that means showing up and not offering like a half-hearted apology if you've done something wrong, or an apology with a subtle barb kind of wrapped into it, I'm sorry, but if you've done everything in your power and they're not willing to be restored to you, I believe you can have peace. I think you have peace with yourself, you can have peace with God. So conflicts happen. Jesus is not saying that conflicts are not going to happen. Conflicts happen this side of heaven, they do. And in every single conflict, in every single relationship that we have, we've got a choice. We can choose to fan the flames of that conflict. You know, we can choose to try and turn that conflict into an absolute bonfire by fanning the flames of it, by the, the words that we use, the stories that we tell, the posture that we take, or we can, do, we can work to extinguish that fire. And what Jesus is saying to his team in the huddle is this is what disciples do. They extinguish it. They extinguish those relation, relationship fires. They're reconciled to people. Uh, this is especially important in a community like ours. When Karen and I were first married, we were living outside of Washington, D.C., and, and there in a city environment, you just didn't see people that frequently. So if you had a conflict with someone, it'd just be like, hey, you go your way, I'll go mine, and we'll never see each other again. That's not true here. I think God has a sense of humor. Like what I've noticed in my own life, I have a conflict with someone, dang it if they're not shopping at Jewel the same day I am. And then I say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shop at Hy-Vee now. And you know what they say? I think I'm going to shop at Hy-Vee now. And I see them in line at the meat market and up on the dike and at the football game. Your conflicts will hunt you down. Those relationship messes, they will hunt you down. So we're called to, to deal with it, and it's never easy. It's never easy to have those conversations, but it is so good. It is so much better than just letting those conflicts persist forever. Last, uh, last year... At our Wednesday night table downstairs, I was trying to make a joke. I was talking to the group and trying to say something that was funny, and I, I deeply hurt somebody that was there. Didn't know that I did it, uh, but this person left that and thought, oh, he must be angry with me. There's something I did. He's upset with me. Why would he do that? And fortunately, that person was courageous enough to come about a week later and, and address it with me and, and say, you know, why did you do that? This, is, this hurt me. And we were able to have a conversation. And as a result of that conversation, we actually became closer than we were before that. It's never easy to have those conversations, but it's so 
so good. So remember the large crowd, the disciples. What differentiates us from the large crowd? What differentiates us from the world? It's not because we don't murder. It's how we handle things like anger and how we handle conflict and what we choose to say and what we choose not to say and how we show up in this world.